Hi, welcome to the Conversations About Consultation podcast. I'm Jessica Rowley and you're here listening to some of the conversations that myself and my co-host Dr. Emma Kennedy and Emily Crosby have had with guests from across the world about consultation in psychology. Myself and Emily are trainee educational psychologists at the Tavistock and Portman NHS Trust and Dr. Emma Kennedy is Deputy Course Director and teaches the consultation module on the Doctorate in Educational Psychology course. The three of us have a keen interest in consultation and hope that this podcast offers a platform to discuss different views about the topic and future directions in consultation. We hope that you enjoy listening to the episodes and if you want any more information or are interested in being a guest with us, please feel free to get in touch. Welcome to this episode of Conversations About Consultation. In this introductory episode, Emma speaks in conversation with myself and Emily about our roots onto the doctorate in educational psychology training programme, where our keen interest in consultation and EP practice started our vision for this podcast, and our thoughts on some of the current issues and debates in the field of consultation. Welcome to our introductory podcast, Conversations About Consultation. And joining me this morning are my co-hosts, Emily Crosby, who's a trainee educational psychologist in her second year of training, and she's currently on placement in Surrey. And our other co-host, Jess Rowley, who is also a trainee educational psychologist in year two, who's currently on placement in Islington. So it's really great that we finally had this opportunity to kind of sit and talk with one another um, about the podcast, about consultation, about why maybe we felt it would be sort of a, an interesting and, and hopefully somewhat helpful thing to be able to do um, and to maybe introduce ourselves a little bit more so that as we're having guests on, um, that anyone who's listening to it has a bit of a sense, particularly of your backgrounds, why you wanted to become educational psychologists, a little bit about your interest in consultation, um, and then particularly probably thinking about your experiences, especially this year having been the second year of your training, um, and while half of your last year was pretty much entirely disrupted by the pandemic, um, you've definitely been out this year on local authority placements, working directly with schools and in the community and really to try and understand a little bit more about what consultation has looked like and maybe some of the barriers the challenges and perhaps some of the opportunities and when so much of what we've been taught how to do and kind of what we've been emphasizing is really important to do has actually been really kind of um, not so possible and so yeah it's it's great to have you both here um, and I'm thinking maybe what would be a good place to start with is yourselves. And if you would both maybe just introduce yourself and say a little bit about what made you decide to become an educational psychologist. Yeah, so thank you so much, um, Emma. Um, it's really lovely just to have some time to sit back and think about what actually um, made me want to become an educational psychologist. Um, I didn't actually know what an educational psychologist was until I did my undergrad. Um, so I really enjoyed um, psychology at school and I was pretty set on um, clinical psychology because that was the only um, psychology I knew. Um, and my dad, he was in the police um, and he um, had a colleague who was a clinical psychologist and did a lot of work with post-traumatic stress disorder. 
and for my um, year 12 work experience I got a week and um, kind of shadow in her which was wow. just yeah which was very rare yeah <laughs> Sarah so still keep in touch with Sarah um, and she's done a lot actually at um, from the Grenfell stuff at the moment mm. and working with them a lot of the victims there so that really opened my eyes um, and I loved it and then when I was doing some work experience in my undergrad I worked in a rehabilitation unit um, with adults who had acquired brain traumatic injury and again that was with more clinical psychologists and I was doing some one-to-one support work and um, with some um, patients and then I am um, decided that I'd like to try and maybe do some experience with children I've always kind of enjoyed working with children and I used to do a lot of dancing so I used to do a lot of dance teaching and assistant work kind of when I was at school was like my Saturday job just to get some um, pocket money and so I've always kind of worked with children but didn't really know that psychology could be applied in that way which seems Mm -hmm. quite silly because um, (laughs) of school and everything and so I um, did some work with children with autism um, did some ABA work and um, I just really liked the changes I could see with children um, and then realised that there was this thing called child and educational psychology and did the educational psychology and developmental um, modules in my final year and I think by that point I was pretty set um, so it was more about just trying to get out there and get some experience so I did some work in a specialist um, school, children with autism in Kensington. And then I really was quite keen on working with the adults that work with the children. Mm-hmm. And we had an educational psychologist come in then, but I didn't really get to spend much time with her. And I remember always having this kind of envy feeling of I really wanted some more time with her. And um, so I actually went out to try and get um, an assistant position, which is really, really hard. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, um, I really was kind of taken by the kind of SEMH side of things and um, social, so social emotional mental health needs. Yeah. Yeah. And working with children who have um, been through trauma. And um, mm. so I found um, an SEMH provision that mm. was just taken on kind of assistant education psychologists to work in the school. And it happened to be that one had just left. So they came mm. in position. So I just thought, oh, I'll apply for it. I don't really know much about this area. And at the time, I'd been offered a position in a, a, in a school with children with autism, which was much closer to home. And I thought the journey is going to be better. It was a bit more money. Um, but then I thought, no, I'm going to I'm going to go where my heart is. And that's in that kind of area of SEMH. And I'm just so glad I did, because I think it was a massive um, eye opener in the experiences um, I had there. And I was supervised by an educational psychologist in the yeah. local service. But it was obviously quite a difficult um, role so yeah that was really my journey into wow. becoming uh, and can I just check then um, Emily because maybe some people who, who might listen may not be an educational psychologist or be in training necessarily do you have to have been an assistant educational psychologist prior to to getting on to well in the UK where, where we are we're, we're based in London it's a three-year doctoral program um, do you have to have been an assistant to be able to apply for the training? No, not at all. And many people who are on the courses haven't been an assistant. I think it's one of those things that it's come up as kind of those glorified positions. That's the only thing that you can do. And I think they're so hard to come by the assistant positions that I think a lot of aspiring EPs really put themselves under so much pressure to get those roles when actually you can 
just as good and if not better apply psychology in other roles um I think for me it really helped understand what an EP was when I had that role because I was able to shadow my supervisor sure. and he helped me think kind of shape my understanding around the role and um, but I think that's ever changing and I think we're mm. still developing that now what is the role of the EP mm. um but yeah I think you can you can as long as you're working with that zero to 25 um age bracket and I think even when I worked in the um brain trauma unit I was working with some young adults who were kind of in that 20 to 25 range and I still revert back to my thinking then even though I didn't really know what an educational psychologist oh, was then. yeah okay no, that's really helpful because I think you're you're quite right I think the sense is that maybe that's the route through and that you know if you've been an assistant DP that somehow that gives you a, a better or or a very distinctive kind of experience and I'm, I'm sure it gives you something unique as every experience does um but I I think yeah it'd be good just to sort of maybe share in your own current year group you haven't all been assistant educational psychologists no I think there's only a really small handful perhaps maybe four five I don't know exact numbers and um, we've got a couple of um, people who are teachers, mm. SENCOs, and one-to-one special educational needs assistant. I think the main thing I would say is you need to have experience of working directly with the child. I think it really helps your training and thinking and work now. So I know from working Monday to Friday, six hours a day, one-to-one with the child, because I did that. And I think you've got to really learn that kind of on-the-ground work because you do have to want to be with children and work with children and you need to be able to see those changes that happen mm. from that kind of direct intervention work. So I think as long as you're doing anything that has that kind of bit of experience of working yeah. with that with the age range. Yeah. Mm. And on that bit then, Jess, maybe you'd come in and say, I, I don't know if you were actually an assistant. I thought you had been an Elsa, but maybe we might want to say a little bit about what Elsas are. And again, why did you want to become an educational psychologist. Yeah, that's right. I Before I started on this course, I was an emotional literacy support assistant, which is a role that I guess was developed by educational psychologists to kind of put TAs in a role in school that could help children with emotional literacy, perhaps to lighten some of the, the load for educational psychologists. And actually one of the best things about ELSAs is that they're supervised by educational psychologists. Yeah. So trained and supervised by, yeah. which means that they have um, still a role, you know, in, in monitoring kind of progress for emotional literacy in schools for children and young people. Um, but the TAs are empowered in that position. And, yeah. and I think it's, for me, part of that maximizing the impact of teaching assistance, I think it fits really well. Um, yeah, I personally loved, loved that yeah. role. Um, but I guess I can talk a little bit about how I kind yeah. of got into psychology generally. I think very similarly to Emily, um, I, I think I've always been drawn to psychology, even from a very young age, even if I was, you know, very interested in literature and I was reading, it was always the kind of behavior or the, the psychology behind those things that I was most interested in. Um, and I think, although I didn't really think about it, I kind of took psychology at A-level and loved it. 
I loved like thinking very critically about everything, which I think is something that has not left me. Um, but I remember we were in sixth form and we had to do one of those exper- a bystander experiment. Um, and, you know, like one of one of my little group had to like pass out in the dining hall and see what would happen. And I'm probably really unethical now thinking. About it. Um, yeah, but I remember just thinking, wow, like no one came over. Like everyone was like walking over him. And I was just like, do they know it's an experiment? like yeah so I think that was one of the first times I was like whoa like actually you know psychology is so important in everything in everything Mm -hmm. and it's so broad and it's so interesting and so I wanted to study at university um Emily and I actually went to the same university so we we um know each other from there too yeah small Um, world I know exactly together (laughs) yeah um yeah so I did a university and I really I really loved it to be honest it's it's quite an overwhelming course actually I think because there's it's so broad you know like you can be in a biological psychology lecture and you're learning just like really heavy kind of biology or neuroscience and then the opposite like developmental or social where you're thinking about lots of other things that impact on those things as well but I liked that you can bring all of that together to think about something in a certain way um and similarly to Emily because I thought it was the only option I was interested in clinical psychology um which meant I in my between my first and second year I went to work in Sri Lanka on a clinical mental health placement um for three months which was incredible I loved Mm -hmm. it I think that it was a really good experience working with like clinical populations um so that changed my thinking quite a lot and I think especially drawing out some of the whiteness of psychology and the way that we think about things because um the views that they had about mental health were not the same as Mm -hmm. they are uh, for us in the UK so that opened my eyes a lot it -hmm. also was really difficult (laughs) and I found it extremely challenging and when I came back I was like hmm that maybe clinical psychology isn't possibly what I want to do but I didn't really know what else um Mm -hmm. But again, like Emily said, we worked together um, when we did ABA, which is Applied Behaviour Analysis, which is used usually for children with autism. Um, There was part of me that found it quite difficult to gain because it was very um, behaviourist, which was something that I had lots of questions about even at the time. Mm. Um, And then I think after that, I went away from working with children for a while and I did my master's in psychological research looking at something quite different marketing psychology further I went into the course although interesting it was Mm -hmm. slightly less meaningful for me than what I had hoped to kind of have in my life so I think after I finished that I got a role as a learning support assistant in a college further Mm -hmm. education college which I just loved Um, and that's the first time and actually I don't remember learning about educational psychology at university but when I started working at the college I was in contact with educational psychologists and I was like hmm interesting this is a role that I could do and that I would love to do and I didn't know it existed so that was a really nice um, kind of feeling and then after that I went to be an emotional literacy support assistant at a primary a mainstream primary school which for me was the biggest part of kind of moving into this course because mm-hmm. I did a lot of work systemically which I think 
I love working individually with children and young people and in role as an ELSA luckily at the school that I was at I was working full-time as an ELSA I was having groups I was having individual children so it felt like I was having a really big impact but also one of the best things was that they were very open to thinking about the whole school so there was lots of emotional literacy interventions like the zones of regulation that I was able to kind of implement at a whole school level with support from the educational psychologist at the school Mm. um yeah so I think that's kind of when I started thinking oh it would be really interesting to apply for this course and see how that goes and yeah now I'm here but yeah Yeah. I think it's it's a wild journey and I think since I started the course I reflect a bit more on actually maybe some of my journey to becoming an EP is a bit more personal or Mm. you know intra- psychic than than mm-hmm. I maybe thought that idea that being drawn to a helping professional feeling like wanting to kind of help children and young people that perhaps have experienced trauma um it's yeah. really though it, it's that highlighting I guess that sometimes we might be doing stuff without quite really interrogating mm. how come I'm doing this or I want to I want to do that or, or whatever and that real kind of sense of Perhaps there are things that go on slightly beneath the surface that might be quite hard to surface, to think about, to kind of to, to be there. But they're very, very influential over our actions, nonetheless. And, you know, I think that's a, it's a very insightful, I suppose, and, and kind of very honest idea that actually we can think we're doing something for one reason. But then as we spend a little bit of time thinking and reflecting, we realize that perhaps there's a little bit more of ourselves in it than, than we would have originally given given credit for. Mm-hmm. I think the other thing that really struck me, I guess, is that you knew each other before. And I feel like I did know that. It was only now that you have reminded me, but undeniably we're, we're three white women uh, working in a profession that I guess, I, in my experience, is predominantly white female. I think the training route, um, I mean, that both of you are describing that you need to have your a psychology degree or a qualification that you have to have had some experience of working with children and young people and it can't just be a couple of weeks here and there both of you are describing quite you know substantive sort of roles that you've had um and then you have to come and do the the three-year training that all of that is possibly financially um perhaps easier uh, for some people than it may be for others because um, sometimes roles can be even though they're of, of huge value and are really essential they may not be paid at quite the way in which you would hope that valuable and essential roles would be um, and kind of I guess noticing a little bit about the yeah coming to that point about self-awareness and understanding why we're doing what we're doing and why the adults I guess are doing what they're doing in the work that they're doing when we come um to to come alongside them and that interesting idea about help because I think what we've been exploring a lot in terms of consultation is that it is a professional helping relationship and that what we're trying to do is to help well we would call a consultee, although we know that that language sometimes can sit quite uneasily with people. Um, Primarily, we would be thinking about adults who are around the child or young person. So it may be obviously teachers, it could be Elsa's, it could be teaching assistants, it could be other staff within the community. Obviously, critically, it could be family members, it could be carers. 
Um, and what we're hopefully trying to do is to help them to do something that will be helpful for the, the client, the child or young person. But within all of that kind of just noticing that it isn't a sort of a straightforward, entirely positive, it's great that I want to be helpful because there's a dynamic of helping that's going on and it's situated in a much broader context, isn't it? About kind of how do we truly come to know and understand what experience is like for other people, particularly when there's such a play out of, of power, of inequity, um, of really systemic challenges. Uh, systemic is not the right word. It's societal wide inequalities, whether that might be around race or around socioeconomic status, it could be around sex and gender. There's so many different areas where things are not actually fair and they're not just. And the part of the role one would hope is to be able to challenge injustice whilst also recognizing that it's not, it's not values free, is it, to do that? And it's not as simple and straightforward to say, I'm helping somebody, I'm great that one really does need to think about kind of the, the, the relational dynamics within that and what might also be getting played out. Yeah, I think those things really have come to light and come to the surface. I guess they've always been there, but when you're on this training course to actually think about those differences. And I know, I think as a young white female um, who isn't a parent, I know that's one of the kind of identities that come into play and sure. especially felt um, when I was an assistant EP and having consultations um, with parents who, you know, felt like maybe it was quite hard to relate to me or me to relate to them. Yeah. Yeah. You're, trying, you're trying to help, <laughs> like you say, that help professional, but it's what it's bringing out in you as well. And it's making you realise, and especially I think with race as well, and thinking about whiteness and thinking about privilege, um, you don't necessarily think about the impact that has until you're actually doing that kind of helping work and that relational work through consultation and which is part of I guess the privilege in and of itself isn't it that perhaps we haven't had to think about yeah those things um but recognizing now that actually we have a, an ethical responsibility a moral responsibility to to our to each other mm. that we do need to start thinking more um and being more like Jess's point about being more critical um, and being able to really interrogate ourselves a little bit more, not, not in a harsh, punitive, punishing sense, but in a genuine sense of what really is going on here um, and is what my intention, actually the impact of that, is that I'm, I'm noticing the intention impact gap and how important that, that can be um, in, in the work that we're doing. And I think you've mentioned there um, about about consultation and when you were working prior to the training program and maybe that would be good just to just as a very quick question prior to becoming trainee educational psychologists had either of you had a consultation as in where you were the person in the receipt of help from an educational psychologist I don't think oh no I, I probably now no I think I'm see this is now where I'm get, getting confused about when I first encountered consultation because I think I was observing my supervisor okay given that help but okay. um, I wouldn't have received consultation myself it was more supervision I think sure. rather than consultation okay 
that's really helpful. And Jess, what about you? Yeah, I think similarly, uh, in my role, it was supervision that I was receiving. I think consultation would have been possibly with the teacher or Mm -hmm. um, with the center of the school. And Mm -hmm. I I did sit in on some to observe, Mm -hmm. but I wasn't necessarily receiving, (laughs) um, yeah, the consultation. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because I guess then you would have started your first year on the training program last year, learning how to do the thing. And it's not something that you'd ever experience being done to, if that makes, I mean, obviously we are trying to, it's not doing to somebody, hopefully we're working with somebody. Mm. Um, But I think it's an interesting question for us to have in our own minds about kind of learning how to do something and how it might be taken up and how it might be experienced um, and how important it is to really pay attention to the voice of those that we are trying to help. Um, and how can we really foster a sense where it is something um, enabling, uh, it's supportive and challenging, um, and ultimately that it's helpful, that it makes a difference for them, it makes a difference for the child and young person, or if we're applying consultation in terms of groups, that it's helpful for the group as a whole, or you know, do more organizational consultancy, that it's of benefit to the organization. So on that point, then, maybe it would be helpful just to hear a little bit about your initial thoughts when you were introduced this idea of here's a way in which we can try to be helpful, that we would be quite focused, particularly on the adults around a child and young person, um, about some of the, the kind of feelings that those adults can carry about their professional roles Um, And about this idea that one would really try to be of help to the consultee in service of helping the the client, the child, the young person. What were some of your initial kind of thoughts, ideas, challenges to to this idea or concept of consultation? Yeah, I think at first I felt quite overwhelmed by it and thought, wow, this is quite a big thing to do. Um, But I think the turning point for me is when I realised that you could actually help so many other children by just helping that one adult. So if that adult is a class teacher of 30 children and they can go and apply it um, to other children, I thought this is going to be much more of an effective way um, of working. But I I think it it doesn't come without its worries about how you can help. And I feel like it feels like such special time with the consultee and you there's that pressure for it to be so effective and I think that's still there with me now and as I've developed from kind of first year to second year I don't know how you feel about that Jess yeah I think that um it is there there is quite a lot of pressure and I sometimes wonder whether it's because there's almost a point to prove with consultation um Mm. the idea that it is potentially sometimes positioned kind of either or consultation or statutory work or individual work or direct work with a child and I think that that can sometimes exacerbate that idea that actually if I go and do consultation I need to prove that it's effective because you know if I can't prove it then it's yeah it's easier just to keep going along with the one-to-one or the individual statutory work which is obviously there's quite a lot of pressure in, in the system that we work in to to do that sort of work Um, And I know I speak a lot about evaluation of consultation all the time, um, but it is more difficult perhaps to to evaluate or to show um, impact of 
how successful consultation is. So I think that that also plays a role. Sure, in that pressure. Mm. You've made a really interesting point about the, well, the kind of almost either or somewhat false binary between either do consultation or this other stuff. Um, And I guess it's probably one of the things that are, I would say is quite commonly encountered by by a range of students who go out on placement or who um, you know spend time working in services more generally is a sense of what actually is consultation because I'm observing different people do different things I'm reading some papers I'm going to seminars and workshops and I'm still not massively clear when somebody says they're doing consultation what actually is it yeah is that is that something that you feel you're commonly encountering um this what am i doing when i'm doing consultation jess's point always what am i doing when i'm doing it well uh, and how would i know um yeah could you say a little bit more about that yeah i think that actually um when i sort of finished first year at the beginning of second year i felt very sure about what consultation was because of the training and and the teaching that we've had on our course um, obviously it, it did help to have teaching like throughout the year um, having like a whole module that covers consultation and quite consistently covered one model of consultation which obviously drew, drew on lots of different approaches but I think I felt quite um, yeah quite confident that I knew what consultation was what it should look like in practice and I think going then into my second year placement um, yeah, on placement, I found that much more difficult to apply in practice. Um, I think that there is potentially a disconnect between how how that theory kind of uh, gets applied in actual day-to-day work. Um, I think that in terms of as well, that what adds to that confusion is that that everyone has a different idea of what consultation is. Um, although I felt confident with my my own sort of definitional or from the teaching that we'd had, I think that when I started to kind of speak about that in my supervision or with peers and colleagues um, from different services or from the same service or from different training courses, it was clear that there wasn't really a unanimous kind of idea about what consultation was in terms of its definition and also what it looked like in practice and I think that because there is quite a lot perhaps of of confusion about that or that people just have different ideas which obviously can be really positive because it means that people are are able to adapt this concept quite flexibly to their work Um, I do think though that it means sometimes we're not able to articulate in a very clear way to schools or to consultees, teachers, Senko's parents, what it is that we're doing <laughs> um, and, and why perhaps it is that we're choosing to work in that way. Um, I think often I would myself, if I was thinking, oh, I'd like to practice really well at consultation, I would quite like to be able to say at the beginning of every consultation process, you know, this is consultation, this is what it means, um, you know, to make that accessible to a parent or a Senko or whoever you're you're kind of doing that process with. Um, but obviously, they still don't do that a lot in practice, because there's so many restrictions around time. But if I if I, for example, say, you know, I sort of follow this very um, flexible model of consultation, but it might involve these things. What happens if I run out of time and I can't do one of those things and I've promised 
that to um, the consultee and what if it doesn't quite look like how I've explained it to look like um, and what if somebody else kind of comes in and is doing something very different mm-hmm. um, especially because I share schools at the moment in my service mm-hmm. so I think there are a lot of barriers to kind of having a clear understanding of consultation mm-hmm. and and what it means to be doing it. And you've mentioned I think two vital things there one is the sort of ethical idea of if I'm going to say I'm doing something, well, I need to let people know so that they can make an informed decision about whether this is something that they too would also like to do. And that it isn't something, again, if we're saying we don't do it to people, they need to understand a little bit more about expectations about what their role would be and how, you know, the work might happen together. Um, So that ethical component really coming through in what you're saying. I think the other bit really is an, an aspect of our, you know, consultation also, you know, in the context of being a helping relationship <clears throat> in a professional context, it has a problem solving or a, a systematic problem solving component, um, which, you know, is very clear within the British Psychological Society's competencies that you guys are having to achieve by the end of the three years of your training. Um, and for our sort of systematic problem solving framework the big part of the beginning of it is contracting and I think you're touching really um you know well on this idea of well what am I contracting for if I can't clearly quickly easily um in an informed way share with my uh, the people that I'm working with what is it that we're going to be doing and how we're going to be doing that work together I I mean, I think it's one of the things that comes up, I would say, quite a bit, actually, that if there's one thing that people on reflection after having done a consultation want to kind of think about again, it has tended to be, I wish I'd contracted differently at the beginning, or I think about it now and I'm not quite sure I really did get there would would you guys recognize that phenomenon that contracting and consultation at the outset can be a fairly important component of what you're going to do 100 <laughs> percent. i'm i'm laughing because i've got a case at the moment where i feel like i could have contracted a lot better at the beginning and um, because it's very hard to end this consultation process and this consultative relationship and um i think perhaps if I had contracted a bit better at the beginning, I might not have found myself in this position really struggling to end. Um, whereas I've had other consultations where I feel like the contracting has gone really well. And I've really thought about like just what you were saying about trying to get all those elements in, but asking, you know, the parents in this school, what, what they would like and how will they know that they've got what they want and what they need. And then kind of bringing in my elements of that. So trying to kind of find that balance where it's, meeting my needs and meeting their needs as well and it's gone really well in that process in terms of thinking about the contracting but yeah definitely I think it's it's key and I know that's one of my big learning and developments at the moment is just just to think about that contracting at the beginning and I think as well like thinking about contracting in terms of the relationship the professional helping relationship I think if your contracting isn't perhaps um yeah appropriate enough or specific enough um the relationship or the boundaries that you kind of create for the consultation process 
can influence on that relationship for example if if you promise something and then don't deliver it or if you don't um yeah have enough of like you just said Emily asking them what it would look like if if it was successful if you don't know that information then the relationship is starting from a place of um yeah maybe not not knowing um or not having explored that person's perspective or um yeah their kind of experience enough before you've started kind of moving on to sort of problem solving or Mm. other processes because I suppose it's also recognizing the importance of language and how one uses I mean even just the word help that might be constructed really quite differently um, whether you're a parent or a teacher or a learning support assistant or an educational psychologist or the head or the special educational needs coordinator it's the same word Um, But everybody may have very different ideas about what that might look like and what the intended outcome, um, those sort of shared goals. And if we don't do some goal setting together or what the outcomes might be or how would they know that this was a good experience? Um, I think you're, you know, you're both quite right that we we possibly end up being in a situation where people are disappointed in the process, that they feel perhaps a bit let down. There's a lot of confusion and a lack of clarity. Um, And we ourselves then can become quite obviously because we wish to be helpful. um, It can be a really difficult time for us too, in terms of, um, yeah, feeling like we haven't been good enough or effective enough or, or yeah, responded well enough to the very real and very pressing needs that are being experienced by, by those adults working with those children. Yeah. Yeah, I think an element of that, um, and just thinking, I guess, about why we were kind of wanting to do this um, podcast as well, was thinking about, you know, what consultation is and how it might mean to another person. And I think just as I was just talking about that example of that contracting at the beginning, and Jess, as you said, about the different perspectives and that that parent's experience of consultation or that teacher's um, experience of consultation. And I think when thinking about that example I was given, I know this um, specific consultees had other consultations and perhaps differed and I think that's can be a barrier to us as well and um, trying to think about w- what consultation is and um, if someone else is doing it really different and then I'm doing it differently and now in this place where perhaps the ending is a bit difficult because it's not quite met the needs of that consultee or what they had in their mind and contracting would have helped kind of tease that out a bit exactly that it's beginnings are really really important and how one starts and the contracting and the nature of the relationship that you establish but I think both of you have been really interested in endings in consultation and how does one bring a consultation to a close in an effective way and I think again you know both of you had talked about research interests and ideas that you may have had for the thesis that you do as part of your doctoral training that I think you'd both kind of know that there's not a huge amount of research about um, exploring or investigating um, this experiences of ending a concept. Maybe more on the how do we start it well and what are the good fact good features of, a, of an effective beginning, but maybe there's not so much available about the end. Um, on that point, and then also linked into this idea about research and consultation, where where do you feel we're, we're sort of at with that? Yeah, I think 
specifically with endings um I know there's a lot of kind of work when I started to look into it when my kind of interest came there's a lot of work and there's a lot of research um in social work and counseling psychology and other different parts of psychology but in terms of educational psychology specifically there's really not much out there at all and um, but I think we could really benefit from you know picking up some of the other research ideas and the findings from the other kind of professionals and thinking about how we can apply it um, to educational psychology. So I think it's definitely something that would really help understand what it is to end a, con uh, end a consultation and end that relationship um, and how we might go about doing that. And I think it would definitely help with that, especially as a trainee. I was thinking a little bit as well how that relates to again part of why this podcast was something that we thought would be useful and I think part of me hoped that possibly selfishly <laughs> that it would be a platform to kind of learn more about um you know what is happening what research is taking place across um not only the UK but internationally and how that could shape our understanding of what consultation is and being able to have rich discussions with people from lots of different um not just places but professions potentially and different positions so you know yeah other educational psychologists or school psychologists in the US or or EPs from around the world and then possibly service users people that have experienced consultation and I think partly some of that is knowing what research is happening and we know that a lot of research that we've kind of learnt on um the Tavistock course has been drawn on from the US and actually we you were talking Emily about there being a lack of literature around endings and consultation but yeah there is a lack of literature generally <laughs> in consultation possibly because it's really difficult to kind of research mm -hmm. and we're still not sure about that you know unanimous definition um mm. yeah you mentioned a bit about you know the podcast about getting to know and understand um what you know the literature that's out there the research that people are doing and being able to talk with people from other disciplines and modalities i just wanted to say a little bit about the kinds of guests that we either have invited uh, or are in the process of advising and um, just to give people an idea about the kinds of conversations that they may be able to listen to who who do you envisage us talking with I think that it will be um, nice to have a broad range of people, um, you know, all the way from trainee educational psychologists like ourselves and having conversations from that sort of perspective, like what's that like to do consultation as a trainee? How do we learn about it? How is that different across courses? I think those are all really important conversations. And then all the way, you know, through to newly qualified educational psychologists, what's that like once you are qualified? Um, it, does that make a difference to how you're practicing consultation? And then I think all the way through level, different levels of experience, different settings, different um, local authorities, which I think makes a really big difference. Um, and I think like, like we talked about internationally, um, having a context for where some of our understanding of consultation is coming from 
Um, obviously, at the Tavistock, we are taught the relational model of consultation, which obviously, Emma, you have helped or worked on developing. And I think, you know, the idea that that's informed by aspects of psychodynamic thinking, attachment or system thinking, and that's our perspective. And that's where we're coming from, I guess, in terms of that's what we know. That's what Emily and I have been taught. And we have looked at other models, but that's for us, that's what we're applying in practice. And I think having guests on from all of those places that we've talked about and also service users so consultees that might have experienced having consultation um as a process a collaborative process maybe um with an ep and what that feels like i think it's really important to be getting different perspectives um and you know what what can we bring having those kind of ways of thinking about consultation and what what might someone else bring and perhaps you know disagreement um and and debate and actually just a platform to be like oh that's interesting that that's you know a perspective i hadn't thought about we know that psychodynamic thinking is actually you know where consultation has its roots potentially not acknowledged across the whole profession potentially something that isn't taught everywhere in the same way it can be i guess a little bit off-putting for several probably reasons um but yeah, how does that impact on how we are practicing and, and how we're having conversations about consultation <laughs> as well? So sorry, that was a very long-winded answer to that. <laughs> no, it's such, a, it's such an interest. I mean, one thing that was I had on my mind about the challenge of having people from other places in other mm. stages of their career, whether that's you know newly qualified or having been qualified for quite a long time, or if they're coming from from away. Um, and that point about, well, how applicable is this going to be for me in my practice? But that, again, kind of, you know, listening to what you're saying about actually it's it's difference, isn't it? It's not anyone hopefully coming and saying this is the one right way to be able to do this thing or indeed the one wrong way. It's being able to hear and think and talk together with people about how they would take up a particular thing and then being able to kind of play around with that idea a little bit more. I think the other thing that I'm quite sort of struck by, by in, in what you said is about the kind of roots of consultation and where it comes from and wanting to be able to acknowledge um, and appreciate truly the work of Gerald Kaplan in, in developing this idea of what originally, I think he termed counselling the counsellors. But I was just thinking about, you know, some of the stuff we talked about at the beginning about time pressures and demands and recognising that in part, that was where consultation started as a response to uh, a system that was under such pressure and such a demand um, that it wasn't conceivable that one could keep doing what had been done. And there's some really key lessons that we can be learning from him and from his team and from the young people that they worked with that maybe offers us something now in, in 2021. I, it's undeniable that we have had a probably once in a generation thing happen, uh, if that's you know the worst way in the world to describe the pandemic. Um, obviously, it's meant a major change in how everything that we do is different, consultation absolutely included. Um, as we're coming towards the close, I think you know maybe that it's just to touch on what some of the barriers that you guys have identified maybe in your practice at the moment or what you're hearing people talk about that may be particularly linked to the pandemic in terms of online delivery of consultation or the nature of needs changing 
the way in which schools have had to operate and the demand on teaching staff, on support staff in school, the demand on head teachers and also on parents, um, you know, whether it will be parents who've uh, lost their jobs or are already having um, the impact of a, a quite unfair system um, as part of their ordinary experience. And then perhaps for other parents who have had work um, and have been able to work from home, which we know not everybody has been able to do, and also to have been home learning at the same time. Um, yeah, just any thoughts that you guys have about consultation in that context at the moment? Yeah, I think the one thing that's struck me is thinking about the kind of equity issues of resources um, and parents actually having access to Wi-Fi, um, access to a laptop or an iPad, access and the ability to access, you know, it could be Zoom or Microsoft Teams we use in my service and actually having to spend a lot of time and with a lot of sensitivity around those areas and thinking about, well, how can my service, how can my consultation be accessible to everyone? Um, and I think this time has definitely raised that for me, but I think I've definitely seen more positives than I would say um, barriers in terms of accessing parents who can log on um, at, on their lunch break or move their meetings around who do have the privilege to be working from home. Um, I'm definitely seeing more fathers, which I've noticed is a big change since COVID. I think, again, this is a very, very kind of traditional stereotypical view that, you know, the, the father and the family, whoever is that father role, is out working and, and struggling to kind of get back from the on the train or drive home so they can be at the school for the consultation. They're actually being able to access it from their office or from their home. Um, and I'm I'm really appreciating that. I feel, feel like I'm getting more views from the kind of family makeup, or whether that might be a grandparent um, or an auntie or an uncle, someone who's quite significant um, and caring for that child. And for working with that kind of consultee to benefit that child, I definitely think has been one of my main um, positives that have come out. But definitely there are those barriers and thinking about building a relationship. It almost feels a bit strange sometimes when you're meeting someone for the first time online. Um, and then when you actually see them in person, I know I've been building a relationship up with one of my Senkos and having lots of consultations um, with her and remotely. And I actually saw her for the first time last week. And it was just really strange because it was like, oh, we almost know each other. Um, but we don't, we've not actually seen each other, but there's still social distancing. So I can't come any closer than two metres. Um, so yeah, there's definitely those barriers around that. But I think it's shown that consultation can be and um, if not more effective in, in this way, I think I'm really curious to think about and learn a lot from the states and think about how they've been using consultation remote, remotely. I think going forward, if, if it make, means that we are more effective and it is less kind of time constraint and time consuming um, for a parent or a teacher or whoever it is to just log on online, I think we can really take away a lot from that. Yeah, I think I'd agree, actually, that there's been so many positives to having the ability to have consultation online, to deliver it online. I mean, obviously, now, Emily, I think that in our year as trainees, we've possibly delivered most of our service delivery in whatever we're doing online. Um, uh, yeah, at least that's what it feels like for yeah, me. Yeah, we have. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I do think, yeah, that uh, to be honest, it 
even selfishly, there are lots of reasons why it's positive. You can, you know, um, be in the comfort of your own home. You can have your notes open <laughs> if you need them. You know, as a trainee, I think that actually it gives you a lot of privilege to being able to have a very successful consultation if you can have all of that information available and kind of be removed from the situation, but be there. But I do think that it maybe depends on what sort of model you're drawing on as well. Like I find the principles that we've learned in relation to psychodynamic theory, maybe just feel a little bit more challenging trying to kind of think over a screen when I'm looking at myself but I should be you know if I was in person would I be actually like really picking up on other things about the other person that maybe are a bit intra-psychic or interpersonal that we're maybe missing in that context so I think that it does make it more difficult in my opinion to kind of think about okay is there something else happening here you know, what's the projection? What is, is their projection? Is there any counter-transference? How am I feeling? Yeah, even just that feeling of being removed because we're physically not together. What impact does that have? Um, and how, yeah, how does that influence how effective it can be? But I do yeah. think it is, it is overall a positive experience that we can access parents that would probably be almost, yeah, um, more challenging to access in in person, particularly given that they can access something, access consultation in a space that they feel comfortable rather than, you know, coming into a school where perhaps there might be tension between the school and the parent. And that might be um, really, really challenging for a parent or perhaps Mm -hmm. not safe or not containing to do that. Um, so it does offer it's such a good um, point isn't it about territory because I think that is one of the things that we we think about as a boundary and you know a boundary as a container we've got a, a time boundary we try to start and finish on time so it feels kind of held um, we've a task boundary it's like we're doing this and not this and again making sure that people feel okay I know what's going on here because I'm kind of clear about what's happening as clear as I can be about what's happening but territory is a boundary um and you know you've raised that really interesting point about perhaps coming into school um or to a professional building of whatever nature actually can be very um anxiety provoking for some people um it can be bringing up memories of their own school experience that perhaps has not been particularly positive and that that choice about actually I can be in a space within reason if I have space in my home um, to, to be able to do that is a really important one. Right. Well, one of the things that we've talked about before is wanting to ask um, all of our um, invited guests to just suggest something that they've read or watched or heard if it was a a, you know a podcast it might be someone who blogs that they would recommend to anybody listening to our podcast so yeah I'm going to ask both of you the same question uh for anybody listening is there one book article uh film um something that you would say you should read this or you should engage with this it's a really powerful thing so I think my recommendation is a recent purchase of mine. And although I'm recommending it, I haven't read the whole thing yet because it is quite long. But it's um, the learning from the unconscious book, um, Psychoanalytic Approaches in Educational Psychology. And I think um, 
chapter eight specifically, which is the chapter around consultation and the relational model of consultation, I think is a really um, useful read, particularly for listeners, perhaps, yeah, that maybe haven't heard of that before, because I know that it's not it's not a widely known about model yet. Um, and yeah, for people, I think that are interested in psychodynamic approaches or, or perhaps just curious as to how they can be applied to the educational psychology role, I think this book will be invaluable and also just open up a, a different way, a supplementary way of thinking about our work, um, particularly in consultation. So that's my recommendation. <laughs> it's really hard. I feel like I've got those. <laughs> um, I think one that really struck me on this course and kind of touches upon my sort of journey to becoming um, an educational psychologist and thinking about my own identity and what I bring to role is definitely um, Peggy McIntosh's White Privilege, Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack. That was one that we had on our um, reading list in first year. And I have to say it's really, really stuck um, with me. And it's something that I recommend to everyone who I speak to who haven't yet read it. And I think especially from for being a white and um, female and thinking about what privilege I wasn't quite aware of. And it's something that I even think I would like to have read even when I was at school, learning about myself and society. And um, that's definitely one that has has stuck with me. OK, well, I think then um, hopefully when this is visible to people, um, it will be coming alongside other episodes and, and people that we've we've spoken with or, or will be speaking with, with the possibility that for um, one of the platforms that we were thinking of using, which is Moodle, um, there would be potentially, if we can make it some linked resources that are relevant to the podcast, and we'd, we'd like people to be able to do that. But I think our main thing that we would really like people to be able to do is just to listen and to hear people talk about consultation who have a, an abiding interest in us or who come from other disciplines who have thoughts and, and kind of concepts and ideas that we feel could potentially be really interesting, engaging, challenging, confronting in some respects. Um, and yeah, to, to be able to listen is one thing, but also we're hoping it maybe generates questions for people. So how come that was really great? Or why is that an issue? Or could we hear a little bit more? And we would really want people to be able to post questions or comments on what they've heard. Um, with, you know, I suppose our ambition is to be able to introduce those questions and ideas that people have commented on or added um, into future episodes and also possibly about re-invicing um, guests that we've already had to come back and maybe um, use some of those questions from people. So that would be one thing that we would really want to encourage uh, if you're accessing this via Moodle to be able to post on uh, underneath the in the comments um, and to make use of the resources that are there. Yeah. Okay, well, I think we'll finish up there. Thank you both. It was really interesting. Thank you. Yeah, thank you.